Hello and welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you for being here. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences that have shaped their lives. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by the world's greatest living explorer, Sir Ranulph Fiennes, or Ran as he likes to be known. Ran has led an extraordinary life, traveling to some of the most remote and dangerous places on earth. He's climbed Mount Everest, traversed from the North to the South Pole, discovered a lost city, and ran seven marathons in seven days in seven continents. He's cheated death many times and raised millions for charity along the way. We talk about that time when he cut off his own fingertips and how he was nearly cast as James Bond. All that and more coming up on The Travel Diaries. Sir Ranulph Fiennes, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you, Holly. People know you as the world's greatest living explorer. So I just have to say, for a podcast called The Travel Diaries, it is such an honour to have you here. Well, that's very kind. That particular saying from the Guinness Book, and the world's greatest living explorer, due to the exploration records we had, so that's the embarrassing title that they gave me back then. I, I think it's one to be pretty proud of, no? Well, travel sort of became, after the army, uh, my method of making a living. Mm. And speaking of which, there's no doubt a lot of travel to get through. So let's get started with chapter one of your travel diaries. And that's your earliest travel memory. Well, when I was one year old, because my dad was killed in the war four months before I got born, and his mum, who was South African, had lost the other son, my uncle, in the First World War. So, aged 80, she wanted to go back to South Africa, where she was born and her parents were. So she took my mum and all my sisters out to South Africa, and I was one. So I don't really remember arriving there, obviously, Mm -hmm. but I do remember the early days um, on the coast, uh, under Table Mountain, basically. And I remember photographs of the Kruger National Park, So I was really excited. I must have been about eight by then. And all my three elder sisters got taken, and I was told I was too young. So I was left with an aunt on Fecherlechen Beach down by um, Simonstown, the great naval base in South Africa. And uh, I was brought up by my cousin there for about three months while the sisters were enjoying the park and looking at all these wild animals. We only had snakes big spiders and the cape monkeys. It was nice, but I've always sort of regretted not getting to see the Kruger National Park. Uh, One day, maybe I will. So you've not been back since? I've been back to South Africa many times and on one or two occasions to look at, see if I can find our old house unsuccessfully, but there you go. Uh, No, but I, I love it. I love South Africa, particularly Cape Province. And are you still in touch with any of your friends from South Africa? There, um, I have a friend called Subu Sisu Velani from Swaziland, but half South African. And he asked me to go up Everest with him some, I don't know, 2005. And initially, because I have vertigo, I said no. But then a bit later, when my late wife died, I just wanted to do anything which would 
get me out of my misery. Mm. And I thought, vertigo, you know, ha- attack it, confront it. So you think Everest? Of so course I, you do. <laughs> and so I got back to Sibu Sisu and I said, who had, he was the first black man ever to get up Everest from Nepal. That's why he's wanting this time to go up from Tibet. And so I said, Sibu, I'll be happy to take up your kind invitation. Unfortunately, the guides don't like people who are in their 60s without full sets of fingers and who've had massive heart attacks. <laughs> so we had to go out to um, Quito volcano course which checks if you're all right at 20,000 feet so I did all that and they passed it okay and 2005 with Subu Sisu um, tried to get up Everest and how did that go um, I got a second heart attack at 28 and a half thousand feet above sea level which is within 300 meters in height of the summit oh. um, which was unfortunate and I was very lucky to get out alive And I wouldn't have done if I hadn't been given by my wife who made me take pills because she knew that the heart attack might not like the height. They're called glycerine trinitrate. I swallowed the whole bottle worth because I was panicking and my heart was feeling being torn apart. And where the double bypass had been done up with wire felt like it was being torn apart. So, And you're on the peak. You're in the dark. You're holding on to a rope. You've got lots of clothes on. You've got a big um, gas bottle, oxygen bottle. You've got a mask. And I, I really panicked. And I then remembered that I'd taken the pills to keep Louise quiet. And to cut a long story short, three days later, the doctor got me back down to the base camp. And he said, can I see your pills? So I gave him the bottle. And he said, no, no, I mean the pills. And I said, well, I obviously took the pills. And he said, yeah, but there were 80 in there and you're allowed two maximum. So it's a Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> so I did not get up with Subusisu. He did, and he got hypoxia and he died on the way down, but he got to the top. And then I tried again three years later on the easy side, Nepal, and we passed too many bodies, including a friend of mine who had died the same night three years earlier that I had my problem on the Tibetan side, same problem on the Nepal side, and he didn't have the pills, so he died. The next year, 2008, by which time I was an old-age pensioner, uh, Tundu, the Sherpa, who sadly was avalanched last year, agreed to take me and got to the top without any problem at all, and I couldn't work out why I'd made such a mess of it twice. Wow. For somebody who has vertigo, I'm amazed that was one on your checklist well at the end of it all i got back to the uk to kenton cool who's an everest guide and he said did you lose your vertigo and i said no because there are no drops on everest so um he then said well he would kenton cool show me much cheaper it's in the alps not the himalayas weekends he would train me it's called the north face of the eiger six thousand foot pretty sheer and after a lot of training he did it, but it took us three days and nights just to get up this face. And uh, that definitely did check the vertigo. But at the end of it all, I determined never to go up another nasty rock face again. So you're looking down and you just feel, how do you feel? You don't look down. That, one of the lessons from Kenton Cool, knowing that you've got vertigo, is A, don't look down, and B, more important, don't allow yourself to think down. Mm. So if you hear the village Grindelwald 6,000 feet below you, the church bells ringing, it sort of makes you think of what's... But you mustn't. So it's a thought control. 
And that leads me on to chapter two of your travel diaries. And that is the first place that you fell in love with. I I definitely fell in love with South Africa. I still love it. I know it's got its problems, but then most countries in the world have their problems. It's just beautiful scenically. And although I didn't ever get to Kruger National Park, I did go on one holiday with the sisters and all that lot. Um, To the east, it's called the Garden Route, and I would um, advise it to anyone going to South Africa on holiday, get to go along the Garden Route to the east from Cape Town along the coast, past the towns of Allen and George and Asagai Bosch, which is the lowest place in South Africa. Beautiful mossy mountains with little trickling falls coming down them. It's just a fairyland, and you can ski there, you know, on snow, which is unusual. And you can get into the ostrich farm where they have um, competitions because they have bee honey and the competitions are tourists go by. Can they lift up the various tins of honey, some of which are 300 pounds? Mm-hmm. And uh, you get free honey if you can lift it. And then you can go on a ride round a special pen on a fast ostrich. As long as you don't keep you nowhere, know, it can kick you like a horse. Did you do that? Um, no, I watched it. I didn't actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the garden route is well worth visiting. So on to chapter three. And that is the trip where you learnt the most about yourself. I think um, moving forward from the 60s to the 90s, we'd done a great number of polar expeditions, north and south and other expeditions. But one particular one was because we heard that the Norwegians, our rivals, were trying to do the first crossing ever, unsupported by anything, of the continent of Antarctica. And we're talking round about 1,800 miles. So you're dragging food and fuel, and you need food and fuel when it's minus 50. No outside help whatsoever. Hauling 500-pound sledges, which is 190 pounds greater than any previous manhole, starting from the very edge of the Atlantic side of Antarctica, which is bigger than China and India, without Tesco's en route crossing all the way to the pole and then if you're still alive there the other half down to the pacific ocean and whether or not that was possible and so that is what we did and i have to say things um, were extremely unpleasant physically and gangrene and frostbite and your teeth falling out because you're incredibly hungry and your chocolate is frozen stiff so it was very unpleasant, and I think um, the most unpleasant expedition that I've ever been on, but scientifically of great interest to that form of science. And what did you learn about yourself when you were going through that unpleasant experience? Well, although I had by then done 20 years of Arctic, not Antarctic, travel with the same Dr Michael Stroud, um, I, on that expedition... Uh, hated him and he must have hated me and then it wasn't much many years after that I was down there again solo against Norwegians um, when I learnt that I I hated myself the gangrene and everything else and all the unpleasantness and the crutch rot and piles and all the things that happen to you when you're moving um, make you want to hate somebody And if you haven't got Mike to hate, and I have to say, as soon as you get into the tent at night and the cooker's on, you lose your hate, you're back to being friends again. You need the outlet to swear at. The whole point of doing it is that your ability not to give in 
must be greater than the Norwegians. So you had them in mind all the time? That is a huge spur. Are you competitive? We've become more and more competitive. Initially, we didn't realise, but then after, back in the mid-70s, I can remember, you know, you look behind you on the way to the North Pole or whatever, and it's the Norwegians, you know, or worse still, you look ahead and they're up there. (laughs) During your expeditions, you're consistently in dangerous situations and you push your body to the absolute extreme. The question I imagine people ask you all the time is, do you get fearful? And... If you do, how do you handle it so that you can carry on? On uh, the Eiger, the north face of the Eiger, the murder wall, as it's called, I got definitely fearful. You have to look down to see where to put the points on the front of your crampons on your boots into little holes, so you have to look down. Mm -hmm. So the rule, don't look down, has to be broken. And I looked down to see where to put my prongs, holding on to little holes, And I saw 5,000 feet below my feet, and I really flipped. That was the time I really got frightened. Falling into a crevasse, your mind is full of how the hell to not fall further and how to get out. There's not any room for the actual fear. So falling into a frozen bit of ice just didn't phase you in the same way? One should not go into the Arctic Ocean by yourself because you're likely to fall through thin ice sooner or later. And if you do, very often, you can't get out because the ice keeps breaking. You know, this happens to people, and it almost happened to me on several occasions, but because there was always one other person, you know, and he's not going to be far away, he's going to pull you out, and you're going to pull him out, because you never go so close that you're both going to fall through the same bit of ice at the same time. And when you're trekking for days and days and days on end in extreme conditions, what are you thinking about? You're trying to think about something other than the suffering of the, of the moment. And Dr Mike Stroud, who I've for the last 28 years been doing these things with, he once managed to transport himself from the unpleasantness of the, the day uh, by thinking of building for his two young children a Wendy house and he actually planned every nail and what he would do to build it when he got back. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. 
It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So along with all of these amazingly successful expeditions and feats, there have been some hairy expeditions as well, including one that ended up with a few less fingertips. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is that it had been failures. Um, one expedition, which was definitely a failure, uh, was I was doing what I've always wanted not to do, which is to solo either in the Arctic or in the Antarctic, because it's stupid. You're liable to fall in Antarctica into a crevasse and not be able to get yourself out. You're liable in the Arctic to fall through thin ice and not be able to get yourself out. Always take another person with you. The trouble was, that particular year, the Norwegians had managed to reach the North Pole without support, two of them. So the only record up there was solo. So, therefore, I was doing it solo, which is stupid. And to cut a long story short, one of my two sledges fell in. I hit the quick release on my haulage harness, like a dog, uh, so that it didn't pull me in down into the water. But, of course, it had everything on it. It was minus 48, it was dark, there was a wind, and very quickly you're going to die if you don't keep moving, keep your body going. So I had to crawl down these breaking, everything was on the move, and I tried to get my sledge back, and I had to put my hand in to get the traces out of the water to pull it out. And by the time I got it out onto flat ice again on an ice floe which was moving, my hand had lost all feeling. Oh my goodness. The other hand was quickly getting cold. I was quickly getting cold. On this ice floe in the dark, I had to try and put the tent up with one hand. I managed to get the pole into one of the sleeves of the tent, and then it was just going so quickly, I'd have had no hands to start the cooker, and my other hand to pump it to get petrol into the bowl, which you then light. Well, I smelt petrol, so I realised it must be in the bowl, so I then took the cooker away, but half of my inner cheek came with it because it was stuck to the metal. Um. So there was blood all over the place, but it instantly froze. Then when I lit it, I had got petrol in the bowl but too much not too little so there was a tent fire in the hovel bit of the tent so I had to use the sleeping bag which I'd got feathers everywhere of course because of the burnt it was a bad bad, that was my worst moment ever so you caught frostbite on your left hand only only the left hand but in the UK probably anywhere they won't operate on a thing like fingers or toes until five months after the damage 
Right. So on the farm on Exmoor, you know, I was wandering around with mummified finger ends sticking out. And every time you touch something, it's sort of agony. And after not five months, but two months, I was getting really irritable, my late wife told me. And she said, well, she farms, you know, Aberdeen Angus cattle and with clippers. She does their hooves. Yeah. And she said, well, why don't you do that? So we bought a Black & Decker bench rather than wait another three months and a fret saw and she bought me cups of tea and the thumb took um, two days. So just to be clear, you um, took the saw to your thumb to perform uh, your own self-amputation, is yeah, that right? Yeah, rather than... Well, I wasn't going to pay £6,000, obviously, <laughs> but the insurance would pay if we did it when the doctor said... You've got the Black & Decker table out, You've got the saw in. Have you got the saw in one hand and your other hand is on? You, and the, yeah, you've got the um, the damaged bit, and, and you're going like that, and then you turn it round and go like that. So Ran is just showing me how he's going around his very neatly um, sawn fingers. Thank you. <laughs> uh, round in a circle, um, just doing it bit by bit, and the pain. What was that like? No, Ginny explained with the cattle yeah. that if when she's clipping them with the, the big clippers and they're in a, in a crush thing, um, if there's any blood or pain, you just move it further away from the live bit. So if there's any blood or pain, I moved it further away. Has it caused you any problems kind of moving forward with your exploration? Yeah, I mean, like I said, they wouldn't take me up Everest um, for the various reasons. Um, and one of which was that I only had one fully active hand. Frustrating, but I guess in the grand scheme of things, it was... Well, it was just lucky. It could have been the whole hand. You yeah, know. or your right hand as well. Or the right hand, exactly. Yeah. Wow. I must move on to Chapter 4, even though there is so much to cover, and that is your all-time favourite destination. I think um, my all-time favourite destination was the island of Rum, R-H-U-M, off the northwest coast of um, Scotland, where in the sort of 1970-74 period when I got married to my late wife, we used to go on holidays up there because she, when we married, had been working for the Scottish National Trust, taking tourists up Leagach and Sleoch and other Scottish mountains around there, so she knew it very well. And we used to go in a little rubber boat with a seagull outboard to the islands off the northwest coast, and it was just wonderful. What was it like? What does it look like there? Totally wild. Uh, you've got lots of wild animals, red deer herds and so on, even on the islands. Um, there was one place which was very interesting called the Corrievechen Whirlpool, where if you're there at the wrong time, it can be quite dangerous, and boats of locals taking their sheep from island to island have found their boat being sucked into the whirlpool at the worst period and have had to throw animals overboard to lighten their boat to get out of the... Th That's the story. Whether it's true or not, you'd have to ask someone up there. How about a favourite city? I think um, a favourite city would probably be Muscat in the Oman. Second um, would be parts of London. Isn't it interesting how Muscat has become such a travel trend, a popular place for people to go now? Have you been back since it's become very touristy? Yeah, no, I was lucky to be asked back by the Sultan who's there at the moment, Kaboos, although I worked for his father, who he 
chucked out. But the, Caboose is, a, is just a great bloke. He's actually sponsored one of our polar expeditions. So we flew the Omani flag at the pole, sort of in gratitude. And, uh, yeah, I love Muscat. I love Matra. And how about London? Where do you like to hang out in London? Um, in the sort of near to where I go running around the Serpentine. As long as you naturally choose the right time of day and not on a day when the sort of guards, the horse guards are going up and down and the police are stopping the traffic. <laughs> Speaking of running, you saw a lot of the world very quickly when you ran seven marathons in seven days in seven continents. For the listeners, um, these were in Patagonia, the Falkland Islands, Sydney, Singapore, London, Cairo and New York City. How is that even logistically possible? Thanks to a, a lady in North London who l- looked after the British Airways computer. They said if you do it west to east instead of east to west, you gain 24 hours Monday, Tuesday on the dateline. And everything worked very well. And then I got a massive heart attack and double bypass. And my wife said, my late wife said, um, Ran, you're not doing those seven marathons with Mike. And I said, well, you know, and she said, I'm going to take you to the cardiologist in Bristol NHS who did the operation. This was how long after? Uh, um, well, it was three and a half months to do the marathons after the double bypass. And I've been tied up with wire like they do, you know, when they've put you back together again. And um, so we went to see him, and he, Angelini, who's still there, wonderful guy, said to Jenny, um, well, I've done what I've done to your husband, cut him open and done his bypasses to 3,000 other people, but none of them after it have ever asked if they can run a marathon. So I I don't have an opinion, which did not help uh, Jenny. (laughs) And um, so after about a month, I could walk for five miles without lying down all the time and after three months I could do it in five and a half hours which is very slow um, and so we did it and um, by the time we got to the Singapore one I just collapsed and went into an ambulance on a drip and I said I'm not going to run anymore but Dr Stroud will carry on And if one of us does it, it's successful. We knew we'd get nearly £3 million for that particular charity, Marie Curie. When Mike arrived at the finishing post and he was told that I'd dropped out, he said, oh, has he? He came into the ambulance and he said, Ryan, you are not dropping out. And he gave me these pills. (laughs) And within an hour, I felt much better. Magic pills? I know. I've asked him since and he won't say. What a feat. What an absolute feat. Right, Ran, so that leads us on to Chapter 5, and that's your hidden gem. Tell me about an amazing place that you've been to that our listeners might not know about. It's not hidden anymore because um, my late wife and I discovered it, but it had been hidden for a couple of thousand years, and it's called Shisr in the Nejd Desert, which is between the jungles of Dofar and the rest of Arabia, right the way up to Saudi Arabia, which is sand, basically. It was a place, a Quranic version of what in the Bible is Sodom. I don't think Sodom actually did exist, the place that God buried because the people were naughty sort of thing for Mm -hmm. it. But my late wife spoke good Arabic. She was determined that we would find the lost city of Irem. And 1968 was the first time we looked for it. And 1990, after eight big expeditions looking for it and not finding it, on the eighth one we did find it in the 90s, and it's now the biggest excavation works in Arabia, basically. And um, it's a fascinating place. That's amazing. 
Chapter six is a place that you'd never go back to. A place I would never go back to um, would be any of the places where there is a likelihood of foreigners being put in nick for political blackmail purposes, which in Egypt nearly happened to me on on a Nile expedition again in the late 60s. And um, I just would hate, above all, to shut up in a prison. I just, that's my worst dream. So I wouldn't want to go anywhere where there was a likelihood of that. Chapter seven in your travel diaries is your next big adventure. Well, we've got four things lined up. When I say we, I'm talking about Mike Stroud and Anton Baring and the others who've been in our group for over 50 years now. And Subu Sisu from South Africa is a great disciple of Nelson Mandela and wants to raise money not for what we normally do, Marie Curie in the UK, but for the Nelson Mandela Children's Foundation in Cape Town. Um, Mandela, for 27 years, was locked up in Robben Island. When he looked out of the prison window, you could see Table Mountain on the mainland. And so Subu thinks to raise money, which he would do, about three million rand, um, to do a walk from Robben Island under the sea to the mainland. One thing that I wanted to mention is that some people might not know that a completely different adventure could have changed the course of your life, and that was when you were nearly cast as James Bond. How did that come about? Yeah, I just got married, living up in Scotland, because we had a free cottage because she worked for the National Trust, and we couldn't afford to get down to London, which I wanted to do because the army was looking for the leader of an expedition to do the first water journey in British Columbia from border with Yukon to the United States border. And I wanted to apply at the Ministry of Defence. We could not afford British Rail to get down from Inverness all the way to London and stay down there. So when a postman arrived at at the cottage with an offer from the William Morris Actors Agency, they were looking for a new bond because that one that Cubby Broccoli had was called Lazenby. And um, he was charging too much for the next bond. So Broccoli thought, what we'll do is we'll find somebody who does bond-type things and train them to act, and they won't want too much money. Right. And they got 200 people they thought were likely. So I thought, great, free to down London and a hotel. I'll go to the Ministry of Defence and hopefully get the job. Not Bond, I knew I wouldn't get that. But (laughs) surprisingly, I got into the last six out of 200 and got to actually going to see Broccoli. So I can remember the night before looking in a mirror, doing a bit of Shakespeare to take it seriously, and um, went into the room, and there was Broccoli and the director, Guy Hamilton, of the Bond films. And Broccoli, very rude, he looked at Hamilton and he said, how the hell did you choose this one? He looks like a farmer. Yeah, I, you know. I've seen old footage of you. You're incredibly dashing. Well, that's very kind, but he, he obviously thought not. And, and still um, are, I So yeah. the other bloke got the job, um, Roger Moore. Oh, that, just that bloke, Roger Moore. Do you ever imagine what life would have been like had they actually offered you the part? No, but I know that if I hadn't done that British Columbian expedition, which had a BBC World About Us film team with us for three months we would never have got going Ginny and me on the expedition right. front so it was all meant to be Yeah, 007 was just not the path yeah. for you <laughs> so Ran your last chapter, chapter 8 
And that is, what is at the top of your wish list? Where have you not been or what would you like to do that you've not done yet? Well, one of the failures we were talking about earlier on was to cross Antarctica without support or even to cross it with support, but during the winter, which is forbidden by every country that has a base down there. So that's next, if you, if it, you can make if, it happen. If we ever got that, yeah, that's big sponsorship. There's one thing I've been wondering this whole chat... And that is, do you ever just want to go on holiday and chill out? I would like to be going on a holiday um, with my wife and daughter. Yeah, the last one we did was to go with a team of Tanzanians to recreate the Livingston journey up the Zambezi to the day, 150 years after he reached the Victoria Falls, and at the end of it, to put up a big uh, brass plaque at the falls to Livingston. Hmm. And we arrived at the falls on the exact day, 150 years later. Oh, that's a lovely that a story. Holiday. That yeah. does sound like a great holiday. Well, Sir Ranulph Fines, those were your travel diaries. Thank you so much. Thanks, Holly. Cheers. So there we go, the travel diaries of Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Oh, I honestly could have chatted to Ran for hours. That was just the tip of his travel iceberg. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then please hit subscribe and leave a review. And I'd love to hear from you. You can also find me on Instagram at Holly Rubenstein. All that's left to say is thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you next time. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.